Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Swaridge, and joining us are our panel of Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, TQ, Kendra Brown, Jess Finley, and Johanna Hopfgardner. This is episode 31, where, we, where we'll be discussing lines 86 to 7 on Der Schweschel. No. Joey, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> it's Dirk Wechsel. Dirk Wechsel? How's that? Yeah. Better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, could you give us the, these uh, lines in the German, please, Joey? I could. Know, sh- um... Shall we discuss what we've been up to since last week first? That's not normally how this Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. All right. Uh, Jess, what have you been up to since you last got a chance to jump in with us? Oh, I drove way, way, way too many miles um, to go to a wedding and a funeral halfway across the country. Oh. So um, it, it was fine, um, but I haven't obviously gotten much fencing in. Yep. And uh, Joe, what have you been up to? Um, I haven't really been up to anything. I haven't really been up to anything. I had a talk with uh, Fran from By the Sword, uh, an interview in fact, that was really much fun. And I did some horsey work again, but not really Rossfechten, it was more like uh, plain old dressage work to, to improve my one-handed riding. Because it turns out um, mounted fencing is really, really hard when you can't control your horse. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> so, so this yeah, is the equivalent was... of footwork or exercises, but for ponies? Yeah, I- I'd say so, yeah. So that was my week. Cool. Uh, Kendra, what have you been up to? Hello. I have mostly been up to boring day job stuff, but also I wrote a not-quite-ready-to-publish article about decorating book edges. Cool. Any, any big takeaways from decorating book edges? They're very pretty. Sweet. Good to know. There's this awesome thing, which I think is more of a printed book game, where they uh, you hide a picture in the decoration on the book edges, so you can't see it when the book is closed, but you can see it when you like squish it and angle the edges of all the pages. Yeah. And then you get a forehead yeah. painted picture. It's really cool. Cool. I have a friend uh, who does that as a craft, actually. Uh, if you ever want the fanciest notebook for your HEMA notes. See, you have all the friends with all the niche hobbies. I just accept this now. <laughs> Uh, Michael Chidester, what have you been up to? I have been editing this stupid Telhoffer book. I finished writing my Bellafortis paper, which weighed in a little over 10,000 words, and I'm letting that wait. I'll edit that last, and I've been editing everybody else's contributions for this book, and that's been my week. Cool. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully it'll be printed by the end of the month, so I'm on a pretty tight timeline at this point. Sweet. Steve, what have you been up to? I ordered and received an actual shot timer, which it's the shot timer for uh, like competitive shooting purposes. And because I was using the app before, so I decided to get a real one because lockdown is coming back and I need something to do while there's once again no more fencing. 
And it's really cool. I'm showing it on screen. Viewers can't see it. But it's it just like, looks like a watch. Yeah, it looks like a wrist wristwatch. Yeah, and, with a weird thing sticking out the side. Yeah. Is that the microphone? It's a microphone slash speaker. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, what, what's cool about it is you wear it on your wrist, and it has the the sound like uh, microphone feature, which you know obviously picks up the sound of the uh, if you're using it correctly, gunshot or like your gun clicking if you're dry firing. But in my case, it's the sword hitting you know whatever target. In addition to that, it has an accelerometer um, because it goes on your wrist. So the the purpose of that is if you're using it for shooting, is it measures the uh, the kickback of, of the gun as you're shooting. So that way, if there's if you're in like a range with other people and lots of ambient noise, you can still get like an accurate uh, you know count of of what you're doing. And that works for me because the hitting is not always very loud, and mm. I always do it outside. And the other thing that the accelerometer allows. Sorry, I'm going a little long with this. I've been. No, this is good. Does it allow you to like draw and far yeah. from the hit? Yeah, there's this a setting called uh, spy mode, which the purpose of it in shooting is like if you have another, if you're like in a competition, and like you want to see your own scores, like as mm. you know, the other person has their own shot timer, but you want to see your scores. So what it does is the accelerometer measures the first uh, moment that your hand moves. So like as soon as your hand moves towards your gun to like unholster it or whatever, the timer starts. And then it, you know, it just takes time using either the microphone or the accelerometer. Mm -hmm. So what that's useful for, for me is if I'm trying to measure like the uh, amount of time it takes to do a cut, I just put it on spy mode and throw a cut. And then like, as soon as my cut starts, the timer should start. And it should record, you know, as soon as the hit is made. So I'm pretty excited yeah. about it. I tested it a little bit. I think it works pretty well. I've got to ask, was this amazing piece of consumer technology all about guns made in America? Uh, yeah, actually, um, it's... it's. Um, I bet it was manufactured in China. <laughs> probably, probably. Yeah, the, the warehouse that, that it was from was actually in Pennsylvania, or like the place that sells it. Um, but I don't really want to drive like an hour and a half for however long. So yeah, we're good. Cool. T, what have you been up to? Uh, not much fencing related. Working on a few more uh, articles about teaching um, and starting to do some redrafts for publishing those on uh, Keith Cotter Riley's new Hemo Rocks site. So keep an cool. eye out there if you haven't read them on Hemo World Domination already. Um, I'll be putting some stuff up there probably towards the start of next year. Sweet. That's all for me. Uh, what have I been up to? I have been back to an FA club or found an FA club here in Auckland and been to that and uh, had sort of like an assessment with a coach. It was like, yeah, go play with the with the fences. And it's quite quiet because it's the middle of summer and it's exam season here. So I just got my butt handed to me by five kids. <laughs> nice and humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, you know. Middle of the summer, nice game. <laughs> in the southern hemisphere. Yeah, you guys have beat COVID again, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, we we had our second wave, our second lockdown uh, a couple of months ago. We so, did get the societies. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So let's move on. Yeah, Hannah, could you give us the, the German version of these lines? <laughs> yeah. 86 to 87. Yeah. Durchwechsel in findet. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you please give us Harry's translation? Learn to change through cruelly thrust on both sides too. All of those who seek the bind, changing through will surely find. Nice. Shall I give the gloss here? Yeah. It's, it's not that much. All right. Gloss, remember, changing throughs are many and multiple. You shall drive them against the fences who readily displace and who hew towards the body and not towards the exposures of the... Sorry, and who hew towards the sword and not towards the exposures of the body. You shall learn to drive it well with prudence so that no one can set on you or come in with something while you are changing through. Drive it like this. When you approach him with your onset... Thrust or hew in long, strongly above him. If he then hews against your sword and not towards your body to displace or bind on you, then before he binds on your sword, let your point slip through under his sword with your strike, and with that stab in towards the other side, towards his breast. Thus you find the exposure upon him swiftly. Likewise, if he becomes aware of the thrust and drives quickly after the thrust with the sword, with displacement, then change through yet again to the other side. And always do this when he drives after your sword with displacement, and drive this to both sides. That's one play. Sweet. Likewise, with a changing through. Likewise, when you're approaching with your onset, set your left foot forward and hold the long point against his face. If he hews towards your sword, down from above or up from below, and wants to strike it away or bind strongly thereon, then let your point sink underneath and stab towards the exposure of his other side. Drive that against all hues where with someone hews towards your sword and not towards the exposures of your body. All right, one last section, one last section. This even remember how to change through so that no one will set upon you while you are doing so and undertake it like this. When he has displaced you or is otherwise bound upon your sword, if he holds his point on your sword, but not against the exposures of your body, and lets it go out near beside you, then change through under him boldly and stab towards his other side. But if he remains with this point in front of your face, or otherwise against your exposures, then do not change through, but remain upon his sword and work therewith towards the nearest exposure. Thus he may not pursue you or set upon you. How about that, guys? Yeah. Haven't even had a cup of tea this morning. <laughs> That's so many things. All right, so, changing through, like the, the what's the word, etymology, or is that the insect? The... Uh, it's etymology for words. You're fine. <laughs> cool. The etymology of this, is... <laughs> or, or, or of translating, it's pretty straightforward compared to that in this episode, isn't it? Yes. Good. I guess um, what what can be said about that is uh, the sense that uh, Deutsch, which means through. It, it's like a, a little bit uh, different of a sense than we would think of it. It kind of implies uh, going underneath when they say through in um, the early New High German. Huh, okay. Is that, is that correct, Joey? I would have to look it up. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> but that would take so, a while. Changing underneath, huh? 
Well, through, so through in the sense of like going through the, to the other side by way of going below, like going through a tunnel, you know, instead of no, like, like going through a glass door or something. So turning it, the changing, changing through below might be more correct to the meaning than just changing through. Maybe, but I mean, we see just, uh, well, yeah. How, how about like passing under? Yeah. Passing under? I don't know. I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, underpasses here. Any changing through. Cool. Yeah. We'll call it the underpass. Yeah. I mean, I translated it as disengage because it's like the modern fencing. Because you're a dirty sport fencer. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. Well, <laughs> I guess this is like a a type of disengage in modern fencing. There are other disengages. Right. Is just like going around their blade in any way, right? Hold up, guys. Jess Finley, we're going to lose you soon, aren't we? Yep. Do you have any pearls of wisdom you want to leave us with about Dirk Vexel? I don't know that I have pearls of wisdom, but I think I would I would pose a question, which is when it's talking about thrusting to the other side, that could that can imply a lot of things related to maybe the weird picture in Glasgow that, that you brought up, Michael. Um, but I guess what I would say is this, when you are disengaging, when you are coming beneath to do your Durschwechsel, um, should you be re-engaging with your blade on the other side, i.e. should you be disengaging through and then into a hanger? as you go through or is it safety through length and time and not through cover and i think that's an interesting question because we get no guidance about any of that other than it says to the other side so the first piece um and i think we're going to skip go out of t's order here but there's an interesting thing that the goliath manuscript which we can quibble about how authoritative it is but it has two different changing through illustrations in the Krumpau and in the Dirk Vexel. And in both cases, the person is in his upper right hanger, binding mm -hmm. on the sword, which is not a reasonable way to change through at all because you have to do like three extra movements to get there, suggesting what? that it's a no. counterwind and not the initial change through. That's so a great I think way to change through. If, you can, if you're twice as fast as your opponent, but typically once you get through it, your, your wrists are gonna be misaligned for that. So then you have to pop mm -hmm. back up again. It's just a circular parry. Yeah. Well, you have yeah. to do it. It's, that would be just circle six, pretty much, wouldn't it? Yeah. Roughly. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh. I've never found it to be a very simple movement to get that bind on the other side like that. It's okay. almost like a a tighter version of what you would do to get uh, an Abschneiden, right? Like I think I would... you come around and under and up but you're gonna do it tighter and against the blade and at a different measure, right? But it's the same basic action. Yeah, it's also very similar to the Ringek uh, Kurtzhau against a cut where you explicitly finish in the right upper hanger. Yeah. But in the Kurtzhau, you're crossing your wrist as part of the action. With the Dirk Vexel, you're starting uncrossed. Does it say uncrossed? So, what? In the picture in Goliath is crossed. Yeah, but the text never says crossed or uncrossed. Right, so I, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is the illustrations in Goliath don't seem to be showing what I expect from the text. 
That yeah. was where I was going with this. So, and the other illustrations like in Glasgow are also confusing. Isn't that true of a lot of pictures from, uh, oh, just as leaving us. I have I a whole know. life I'm so here. sorry. I, I will leave you with that, just... and I can't wait to listen later and find out what you all come up with. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining. See you, See you next so, week. The interesting thing, I guess, to, to finish that thought is that every source that has the Dirk Wexel picture is showing something different, except Paulus Cal and Peter Feltner sort of agree. So I don't know. But, but Glasgow is standing in Alba, I believe, in that picture. The, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, statement that the uh, Goliath illustrations don't match what you expect. And you can say that about a ton of Goliath illustrations. <laughs> like, like, look through the, the Goliath, not including the armored and the mountain, because those pictures are usually very accurate to what I'm having in my mind. But the longsword illustrations tend to be are all That's my point. Let's move on. I, I was misunderstood, but it doesn't matter. I'm looking at the, the um, Glasgow picture now which I'll pop into the show notes. And it is, uh, first thing that I'll say is, the guy on the left, what's up with his hands? That's really ugly drawn. Oh, he's probably got two left hands. Yeah. You're the expert on, Gla on Glasgow. What can you tell us? And it's like it, this guy swung right the way through down to Elba, and there's just been a little dipping of the point to stab him. That would be my interpretation, if that's the right picture. Yeah, like I reckon you could get to that fairly easily if somebody's chasing your sort of like a crimp style action and just way over committing. Yeah. So you think Maybe the guy on the right the... is doing the pixel, not the guy on the left? Yes. Yeah, for sure. But he's not stabbing anybody. He's basically stabbing him. His point is past the other guy next to his arm. Yeah, that, that's called in by somebody that didn't uh, didn't understand. Okay. Um I want to go back to Jess's original question, which was, are you just using length to go to the other side, or are you binding against their sword and winding? And my answer to that question is, why not both? I don't think there really is any reason that we can exclude either of those. To me, the action of the Deutschwechselum itself is just the fact that you're going blow to the other side. And then yeah. whatever you do after that depends on whatever the situation requires. I'd I, I find, with that. I find it interesting that um, what we don't see is the classic like rapier, small sword, whatever. One person disengages and the person that they're disengaging against does their counter disengage. So basically reset things to how they were. Yeah, so both the, people fighting for the, the uh, I don't know inside line or whatever. I do have a, a thought for why that's happening, and that's basically that the situation you have for this action is not the same as like the the setup for this play is not the same as the setup for that classic disengage counter disengage counter okay. counter disengage. We both do little circles on each other for a while thing. It's not people sitting in Langenort. Yeah, you're not just you're, together. you're not both standing there holding your sword out trying to flick it around to the other side. Um, you are committing with a are drawing them to make a parry by threatening an attack, and you're disengaging the parry as they make it. And because you're 
the like the underlying principle here is that you've got them to commit to a movement and you disengage during that movement. Um, is how the shtick works. Um, okay, I will buy that because like the first few plays are you're attacking at them so that they try and beat your sword or yeah bind onto and, it. And then secondly, there is also the one in a couple of the glosses where you can uh, offer your long point, and if they try to beat your sword, you disengage it. And you could treat that a little bit as a disengage, counter disengage, as a, like they try to engage my blade, I'm going to disengage their blade, sort of thing. Um, mm. But in general, the whole like center line control isn't really explicit here. Rather, it seems to be about there is a committed movement of their sword which does not towards your sword. Mm. And you can evade their sword and go to the opening during that movement. As a result, the if you look at the one-two double disengage uh, play, it pretty much implies that they're just coming back for a hurried second parry. They're not kind of, you know, it's not a like yeah. a, a clever second parry. They've chased the first way and now they're chasing back, and you can just yeah. evade both of them. One thing That's that I do find interesting is uh, with the the long point setup. It's pretty explicit that it's your left foot in front. It's still not our right foot modern long point, is it? Yep. Well, all long point and Shrek Fenster is left foot forward in these. Yeah, so. it's always described as left foot forward. Yeah, it's just a weird disconnect with the, the modern game. It's worth pointing uh, out, by the way, that the counter change through back and forth is in 32278. Although your opponent mm-hmm. is not changing through against you, he's trying to parry, and you're just going back and forth under his under his parries as he tries to stack your thrusts. That is so, also in Dancing and Isn't there another Masters play like this? That's in all of these, where like if he then becomes aware of the stab and moves quickly to the other side to parry it, then you disengage again. That's in yeah. all of them. Right. But again, that's here. a little bit different. There's the other master section has those sort of named, and some of them aren't named techniques like uh, the the workmaster or whatever the peacock's tail. Yeah, the little yeah. wheel is a little bit like the classic. Do a lot of disengages until they fuck up somehow, um, yeah. which is in the fencing from the sweeps. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the Adastunga in the other masters is like that. Just change through back and forth until you get them. Yeah, the classic. The classic kind of rapier, we both have our blades forward with no direct line, so I disengage uh, to get to, to get a line, and you counter-disengage to close the line again. Doesn't really... Lichtenauer doesn't assume your opponent will do that, because you aren't giving them a cue to let them do it. Uh, and if they're disengaging at a time when you haven't given them a cue, you should just stab them. And it assumes that when you disengage, they're already moving, so they have to abort that movement to try and do a parry. Um, instead of being able to kind of nicely re-engage your blade. So the, the, the flow of the context is a bit different to the, the rapier thing, and I think it's related to the fact that it's not uh, fencing from a point-forward guard. And probably also the fact that you still have a direct line of attack in longsword if you have your blades both out and engaged, because you can try and cut directly to the hand. Um, so it's mm. a little bit of a different situation. Re-establishing the bind doesn't give you safety in the same way. Hmm. Um, whereas if I have a, you know, a a shell guard or a cup hilt or something, then if I have my blade out with my with an engagement, you can't hit me directly. You have to do something. That's that's something that I'd never really considered before. I I, I guess 
you can still go for an arm cut in Saber. Normally you disengage, get that arm like you would in Longsword. Yes, but to to get the arm in Saber, right, you have to get you can't get in front of my to my hand on the inside. You have to get behind my blade to this side of the arm, to the like the forearm. Yeah. yeah. And so if I've engaged you with the long edge, you have to come behind my blade. But I'm not sure if in Longsword if somebody's using the cross guard lines, you can directly drop down to the forearms on the the left hand side. Uh, last play of the shield, how I'm ringing. Oh, uh, man. He knows this. <laughs> uh, basically, you drop the short edge over, and you can flick it down onto the hand. Mm-hmm. It tends to land on the left thumb if they don't have side rings. That's not uh, the right thumb. Glasses, hmm? It's not in the true glasses, though, so it doesn't really count. Yes, it is. The true glasses have it against long point. <laughs> But there's no there's no bind required in the true losses. You just hit them on the hands. It's yeah, a, it's true. But it's a counter to long point, and if they're standing like this, they're in long point, so it works fine. It's exactly the right no, setup. In last player of the shield house section. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where you listen to people read books. <laughs> um, uh, can I jump in for a second? I had a go for it, Michael. I had a complete brain failure a minute ago when I was describing the Goliath picture. And now that I'm looking at it, I described it completely wrong. And I understand why everyone was confused. Goliath shows a left hanger against someone who has their sword more or less forward, as in he's not covering the blade at all. He's going around to the outside and not doing the bind that everyone was saying, oh, no, that bind makes total sense. And that's why I, I found it interesting and puzzling, because he's going up to a hanger that doesn't engage his opponent's blade at all as opposed to doing that little circle and getting a new bind. What, what you're doing in that picture is actually something that I hit people with a lot. Yeah, uh, so what I think it is, is his opponent is trying to react to his change through, and then he winds with it and goes for a new thrust. Winds onto his left so side. I think, I think he's going to the right hanger and then going across to the left. I was going to say that uh, certainly in my competitive fencing experience like 90 percent of people if i push on their blade or crump on their blade or anything they will duck their point under mine and do a thrust in an extended left ox uh trying to hit me directly that is the single most common uh action i ever get when i engage somebody's blade does that work it normally works unless you know how to do a short edge uh fluke parry against it in which i do uh so no it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, it works well enough that people do it habitually but to steve's yeah. point about goliath not making sense i think he's trying to show you how this play continues after the text stops so the text would have you go to right ox and then he's showing you the, the, the follow-through on it well my point is that the text doesn't tell you which ox to go to at all it doesn't tell you anything about that so going to a cross ox or going to an uncrossed ox or just shooting the keeping the hands low and doing a like a thrust rising up from something like left fluke, all of these are perfectly consistent with the text because it doesn't yeah. care how you finish. It yeah, only cares exactly. that you get to the other side. Right. Do once you are on the other side, you do what you have to do in order to continue your thing. So a lot of times, like so, someone. If someone likes to parry, if I'm in like long point or something and someone's, you know, trying to suppress my blade, I'll engage, you know, on the strong side, on the right side of their blade. And then 
I'll disengage and you know stab in on the on the other side. And they realize that that I've that I've disengaged and I'm on the other side. And then they start to do that parry on their right side. And that's when you go in with that line that's in that picture, or that looks like is in that picture. You wind onto your left side on their outside line, and you can finish the stab. That makes sense. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. But you can also just counter disengage back as they go into that parry, um, like faint yeah. the disengage and thrust back on the same side, essentially. Right. And then and you'll that... probably still end up winding on your left side, but you'll be on the inside instead of the outside. Yeah. And both of them work fine. Um, the right. like, sorry, no, go ahead, T. To say, um, yeah, I was basically just going to say that this is, it's like it's not a, it's not specific about how you finish the thrust. It just says that you stab, um, which is why it's an interesting question about how. Um, I normally teach people just to do the simplest, most direct extension they can do from the position they end up in after they're on the other side of the blade, because yeah. I believe the thing that makes this play tick is the like the Nakarizen style aspect of moving behind their sword during their movement. Um, so I want to exploit that as quickly as possible. Yeah, I'd to answer Jess's question, I'd say that all that is protecting you is length and measure and distance. You know, physics. Because if you start seeking out a bind to protect you during that... So if you disengage and you're going for the thrust and you start winding in that thrust, you're to seek out their blades, you are losing distance and tempo, sorry, distance and speed and measure and everything. Um, but also, you're, you're basically doing that as an eyes closed action normally. You're, you're taking a guess at where you think they'll try and re engage. And like T was talking about earlier, someone pushes on your sword, you disengage and you thrust in left ox. That's what 90% of our stabs are in the modern game, let's be honest. <laughs> and let's say they push on your sword, you disengage, go to right ox, and they find that they're in, what they've been, left plow, let's say, and just extend as well, and boom, double city. Yeah. Something... We talked a little bit about the left foot long point earlier, which is obviously not so common in the modern game. But something I find interesting about trying to use it, because I try to always use left foot long point when I'm doing a long point style position without a bind, is being able to maintain, and I think one of the reasons people don't use it a lot, is being able to maintain continuous pressure when you're trying to threaten someone with a left foot long point. Because mm -hmm. it doesn't just say that you like are going to, you know, you don't, if you just walk up to somebody and stand still and hold your sword out um, and just wait, they're going to do something that's going to mess you up. But if you can maintain continuous pressure, like little footwork adjustments continually moving forward, etc., then you tend to get a much more reflexive kind of... They essentially... A lot of people basically try to slap your sword away with their sword. It's kind of the, the sort of the vibe of it. Like They just want to get your sword out of their, out of their face. And that particular blade action is super, super easy to disengage and finish your attack on. I've heard the advice many times that the Krumpa is the best thing to do against long point, which I find laughable. Well, you, you're holding your point in line, which means you have right of way. And they're <laughs> trying to beat your blade to take a right of way back. So of course they're going to do that. 
Exactly, yes. But in particular, when you are... If I'm just waiting, and I let them beat my blade at their preference, it can be, especially if they're doing it at a slightly wider distance, it's very hard to disengage through and finish the thrust um, before they can come back and recover their blade. But if you're pushing towards them while you have your long extended point, your point in line if you want, it you can use it to basically create pressure on the opponent and force them to try to beat deeper down on your blade and try to beat more in more of a hurry with more of a committed action. And also because you're moving forwards, you have some forwards momentum, and so it's a lot easier to take a passing step and finish your thrust while they're busy trying to take the blade. Um, hmm. So I find that gives me a lot of a much higher percentage of having that action land. Yeah, and you know you're taking the uh, what is it the common lesson advice of not standing around and waiting for your opponent to act, but acting yourself. Yeah, so that would be a benefit. I I just march towards people basically, and I left the long point and. If they don't do anything, the point lands. And if they try to hit my blade, I disengage and the point lands. It's good times for me. So you mentioned that um, some of what makes this technique interesting is that it begins with a Nakarison type action. Does the German any like linguistic reference to Nakarison in, in Dirk Wechsel? Um, I guess while you're looking at that, I will explain. <laughs> I'm asking this because the Latin gloss does not use the same term that appears in the Nakreisen section, but it uses a synonym for it. Or we don't know if, if it would, would have been a synonym, but the Nakreisen section has a header pursuit, um, consecutione, and here in Dirk Vaxnell, the term ad patendo appears a couple times, which is seeking after, which strikes me as a strong connection. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to say, in answer to your question, it does not explicitly use the word Nakhorizon. There is no use of Nakhorizon and also no use of Indes or very limited use of Indes in this one. There's a little bit in one of the last sections, I think. So it mentions Nakhorizon right at the end, but in the context of uh, if... If, uh, if he binds on your sword, but keeps his point in front of your face, don't try and disengage against this, otherwise he will rush after you and stab you in the face. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's use the word uh, pursuit there. Yeah. No. I'm looking. But other than that, it does not use the, it doesn't use the phrase. So the idea that it depends on this is a is an interpretation uh, of the of the text. I find it something that makes the action more efficient versus trying to do it in just trying to do it randomly. It also has an interesting parallel with the or is similar in some ways to the failure because the first described play isn't about binding and feeling what they're doing. It's describing an action where you're going in and before a bind ever happens, you're escaping the thing they're trying to do, which is very similar to the way the failure is structured um, and is actually quite a rare quite a rare framing of technique in the gloss, which is interesting. Uh, we don't have many plays like this. question related to that, which is, is this 
Uh, are we going to consider this an eyes closed action? And if so, how many eyes closed actions are there in like the network? Because the conventional wisdom that I just saw T express on Facebook today is that Lichtenauer really wants you to use eyes open actions always. So what is Dirk Vexel? How does that fit together with Lichtenauer's love of Indes and Fulin and so on? I, th- I think that for the first play, the cutting play, you're doing this cut with the intention of provoking him with a, a pre-plan if he, if he does a strong beat. But it does contain the provision that if uh, if it doesn't get the reaction that you want, then going ahead will result in losing. Would I call that eyes open or eyes closed? Uh, I I feel that this has to be done eyes open, otherwise it's messy as hell. I very strongly disagree. I think this first play really only works if you do it eyes closed. If you do it eyes open, they will actually engage your sword every single time. You can totally disengage once they do that if they're doing a big panicked parry, but the described play has you disengaging before blade contact, or doesn't mention any blade contact, and later plays do mention blade contact. So implicitly, I think this one doesn't have blade contact. And getting away, throwing in your attack and getting away from their from their attempted blade, from their attempted parry without any blade contact is way, way easier to do if you do it eyes closed. Also in support of that in Danzig and Lev, it tells you that you do it against people who hew, against the fencers who hew to the sword or against the fencers who like to parry. So this implies that you've already observed or otherwise learned what your opponent prefers to do when you choose to use this action. So I read, that's a very similar phrasing, by the way, to the failure. Let me, let me say something about this before you go, Mike. I think okay, so I agree with I agree with T that this works better as an eyes closed action, but going by the text, it says um, when you approach one guard, hew in above long to the head. If he then hews against you to the sword and not to the body, then body body blah go through blow. So it's. You hew in above long to the head, and then if he goes after your sword. So the way it's phrased seems like it's an eyes open thing. Because a lot of times the phrasing we get for eyes closed or faint tea stuff is do as if you're going to hit him with this and then hit him with that. So I think you could make the eyes open argument from the text, but I do think it works better eyes closed. Okay. Sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Oh no! I was just going to try and lead us down a rabbit hole of the exact meaning of uh, "gegen" as against, and that nah, it's not worth it. Not at this time in the morning. We have a tea for that. Okay, so then to engage with what Steve is saying, I think you're right. Um, the text here is more consistent with an eyes open version of this action, and in practice, it is fair to say that, especially if you know somebody's. If you know somebody's habit is to try and parry, then you can react at a much earlier point in their movement and start to do something like this semi-eyes open, where you aren't actually reacting to the specific thing they're doing, but you can throw your cut forward, and as you see them begin to move, you start the disengage. And then, especially if your cut is long and done from wide distance, you often do have you might have enough time. So that's a way to work it back into play. Um, 
What will go super wrong then is if they are actually cutting your face, you will just get hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that this doing any of these as a eyes closed pre planned action is a roll of the dice with very limited information to start with. Wait, so T, how can you how can you learn if your opponent's a parrier or not before you kill them or get killed by them? Well, you do it in the previous exchanges in the sport fencing game. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or you watch other times that they kill people. Oh, yeah, you watch them fight all your mates first. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also, uh, to a certain extent, do preparatory actions at wide distance and abort them and learn somebody's habits on the first exchange like that. Those are, and there are some little things like you can learn to read. There are body language cues people have when they're going to try and cut towards your sword versus towards your opening. A lot of people will have a little shift in their kind of the the sort of the focus of their body. Like that doesn't really make much sense in text, I guess. But um, like if you if you look at a person when they're lining up to cut something, you can after a while start to recognize kind of where they're where their center of focus is, where they're going to be trying to project their cut to. And you can recognize that often in advance of when they've actually acted. So you can look at somebody and say, if they just swing their sword reflexively from this position, they're going to be cutting at me, or they're going to be cutting past me towards where they think my sword is going to be. Or they're going to be cutting down towards my blade, which they think is going to come up from below. And those are little cues you can start to recognize. So there are there are things you can use to kind of get a sense. I feel like a lot of these things are things that your brain is going to notice and not necessarily you. Yeah. Being able to plan them, to plan based on them, you have to like start to, you have to get quite experienced at recognizing them and start to be able to kind of, like I can't pick up consciously sort of, oh, they're, shoulders are at the angle of 17 degrees and therefore they're going to try and cut up my sword but you kind of get yeah. a vi- i kind of get a vibe off people now about when they're gonna which rough right. way they're gonna try and move i've got a question given that t has said many times that fencing is not rock paper scissors we're gonna pretend that it's rock paper scissors for one minute <laughs> i'm gonna guess that the shield how beats this technique because there's all the stuff in the shield how about how they cut at you and you do your thing and they can't change through below yeah so is the question how does the shield how beat this technique no i'm I'm just taking it as magic word that this book is right my question would be does this technique beat the zorn how as a response to the cut or do you just get hit in the head or i don't think it does and the thing i would say in support of that is the text towards the end which says that you need to watch out for them remaining with the point in front of the face and the zorn puts mm-hmm. the point in front of the face so See? if you okay. if you do this while they try to zorn you what should happen is they stab you in the face by chasing your disengage and you might get stabbed at the same time but they're getting stabbed yeah there's going to be some stabbing <laughs> so I'd say that the point of all that stuff, so looking at all of the different uses, so for, to, to lead off, your opponent in uh, 
in the glosses, the opponent of the person of the protagonist of the glosses is very good at disengaging and will brutally punish you with it anytime you make any sort of mistake uh, by you know not having your point online. So I feel like the the point of all of those you know things that coming up like the shield how with the with the point beats the change through and you know the common lesson also hew near what you want so he doesn't change through blow. The point of that is to not give your opponent the opportunity to uh, to, to beat you with the with the Deutsch Vexelin. Cool. So is there a lot of Deutsch Vexelin in the anti-gloss? Yeah, there's a good amount. There's a whole Hauptstück on it, actually. So it's, so it's part of Lichtenauer's <laughs> Hauptstück and anti-Lichtenauer's Hauptstück at the same yeah. time. I think that's it might be. I think it might be the only thing that's a Hauptstück in both of them. And interesting detail from the Latin gloss. I believe the German says you should learn to execute Dirk Wechseln carefully. In the Latin gloss, it says you can use transmutatione to discreetly learn more about your opponent or their openings. Huh. Is that like Mutirum? Transmutation. Yes, it is. That's the the Habsburg term um, is given as transmutatione, so transmutation or changing across. And it says, or also transmissionis, sending across. Hmm. What is what is transmissionis? What would that what would that uh, equate to? That'll be changing oh, okay. those are those are both in the title of this section. Huh. Um, but he uses transmutatione in the actual text itself. Hmm. Cool. Interesting. Uh, I, I've had another question. It's disappeared. No, it's gone. It's oh yeah, that was it. It was more more an observation rather than a statement. Which is looking at our modern game. I quite often see clubs with or situations with relative beginners where neither side particularly wants to to commit to their actions. So you'll quite often see a setup where one fencer really wants to beat their opponent's sword out of the way, and the other fencer has learnt this, and so it's just doing disengages all the time in their fencing. And... It's quite an interesting situation where you might get two two fences from the same club where there's this kind of heterodox split into people that want to chase after the sword and people that just want to disengage all the time. And if you show up to that environment and just start going for direct attacks, then it can be really, really interesting to see how people react. Sounds like you have personal experience with this. Um, yeah, it's it's happened a couple of times now. <laughs> because even people that are desperate to get your sword out of the way with beats tend to expect a sword being the opponent's sword to be sort of occupying the space in front of them, being left there, and as a challenge to get through before attacking, rather than just going for a Bam, direct attacks. 
direct attacks tend to be the stronger the way instead of the weak. But yeah, it can definitely be interesting when people are getting stuck on particular initial actions and just trying to shortcut through that. Um, the this is one of the very few places in the gloss where the opponent actually makes Nakarizen, just to come back to that quickly. That's something which isn't described super often, which is an interesting little phrase. Um, in particular, from a, if you try to disengage when their point is threatening you, they can Nakarize you. Yeah, so like the opponent really has like Dorchvexlin on lockdown, not only punishing you with the Dorchvexlin when you attack their sword or whatever, but punishing you when you Dirschwechsel long. Or wrong, not wrong. <laughs> so they really have this technique on lockdown. This is like your whole toolbox. You don't have to need any other techniques. You just go out there and Dirschwechsel all day and win, right? I guess that's what Modern uh, Fencers did. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that I, is basically how Modern Fencing works. Yeah, I, I thought that... <laughs> Uh, it was the Italians that were good at rapier, not the Germans. Because let's be honest, like this is this is Everyone a solid German. I mean, come on. This is a solid fifty percent of rapier, isn't it? These two plays. Yeah, I mean, I keep saying this. Like rapier is basically just point forward longsword. Yeah, which by extension means that rapier is like longsword, but without all the fun stuff. Does that mean we're going to get I'm not going to disagree, but there's a reason this isn't a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. What? I, I was just saying we're going to get hate mail for this episode. It'll be great. It's fun sometimes to play with. Yeah. I, I've got, uh, I want to wrap up soon, but my one last question would be. For our listeners who have heard this podcast and are desperate to go out to fencing when it's next safe defense and Dutch Vexel the hell out of everybody, do we have any tips for doing it without turning it into a, a double fest? Yes, take the advice of the gloss and only do it when you're pairing wide or whatever. Um, I mean, also, oh, I can actually take this opportunity to uh, bring up something that I've been wanting to bring up, which is the shield house section. It gives you that list of things that you can uh, change through against when your opponent is fencing short. So, if I recall correctly, there's um, your opponent not extending long with their arms, your opponent falling maybe crooked onto you when you're in Albert, uh, your opponent being in Flug or Ox, and your opponent doing any winding. So there's all, all of your situations where you can safely, in quote, in air quotes, no, I don't want to say safely, when you can um, reduce your the, the chances of a double while doing the Dirk Vexelum. What's the difference between a Dirk Vexel from Alber and stabbing from Alber? There's not. Does, <laughs> does that mean that for the the last few weeks I've been telling people that the glosses don't have stabs from Alba, I'm lying or being wrong? So yeah. my my answer to your question, by the way, Mike, on the Dirk Vessel from Alba would be that if you're just stabbing from Alba, you tend to come up straight, so like straight to the target, whereas the Dirk Vessel from Alba sort of does a little circle and then comes up to the target. And by doing that little circle, it evades their attempted their attempt to fall on the sword. 
Yeah, and the, and the real thing that reduces the chance of a double there is the fact that they are going after your sword. Yeah. If they were just standing there and you stab in, it might be asking for a double. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, if you let them like drop their sword down low and just hold it there, and then you try to ch disengage and thrust, they're going to come back up and make a parry or be able to go directly to your hands or something. Um, the thing which really makes it tick is moving in the moment of their movement. So Maybe that's what we're seeing in the Glasgow Effects book, BTW, where the guy is standing in awkward elbow. Possibly. These are probably the two, those will probably be the two big tips I would have. The two big tips I would have for using this action are one, recognize ways you can get your opponent to move in a way that isn't at you. So whether that's throwing a cut at them to make them do a parry or stepping forward and threatening them to make them try and follow your sword or when they shorten their arms off the bind or whenever they do something that isn't moving their sword at you. The bigger the movement is, the easier it will be, obviously. And to have the, which kind of counts for all second intentions, really, second intention actions, really, have a direct attack that's closely related to it in your arsenal and use that against that opponent as well. So, like, if you only ever throw cuts at me to set up Dirk Vexon, I'm not going to bother trying to parry your cuts because I know they're not going to actually hit me. You have to be trying to hit me with your cuts to make me do the parries that are going to give you the opportunity to do this action. You have to be trying to flick your direct thrusts up from Alber or your cuts the hands up from Alber to make me try and fall on your sword so that you can disengage and stab me. And you need to you need to have both of those parts in your fencing. Um, as long as you have the direct action, you'll get the openings to do the disengage pretty easily. So is it worth saying that... Also, worth saying that... We've said that disengaging is a good idea against beats, but not against people that are directly attacking at you. And that this is the where right of way in modern fencing comes from. Punishing people that make dumb decisions like, I'm being attacked, I'm going to disengage and counterattack against that. I mean, sure, a little bit. Exactly how this would go in modern fencing is a bit messy um, because of the way the convention is played now. But the idea of, in general, if they're trying to actually hit you, you shouldn't try and avoid their blade. If they aren't trying to hit you, you can totally avoid their blade. It's still at the core of it. Cool. Should we wrap up? I have one very quick thing I want to say. Uh, but Mike, uh, Michael can go first. Uh, all right. Thanks, T. The, I was going to point out that there's a slice mentioned in the title in Lev. And why is there a slice mentioned in the title and Lev? Is that I think that's what it says. Um, Dirk Vexel in Sheer Snight or the Findit, um, or Schnitt in other in, in a, another text. In, can you Dirk Vexel with a slice, or is that just a weird textual anomaly? Would you ever slice with a changing through? You could turn through and put your blade on their wrists and push them in the direction they're already moving. I'd, I'd think of it more like the, was it the Zekken, the tag hits? Where you can change through and get little chops to the arm. Hmm. Whether that's a slice or a, or a cut, I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of in I think I know it's in Ring Egg and I'm not sure if it's in the other two offhand. Um, the 
in Ring X first knock right one of Ring X knock Horizons, the first one offhand, it describes that you uh you can do this when they when they lift up to cut, you can cut in at them, or when they pull back to thrust, you can thrust in at them, or you can follow after and fall on their arms with a slice. And you're ending up with a very similar sort of action in what I'm envisioning, where you throw your cut in, as they come to parry, you duck underneath it, and then instead of shooting the point forward, you just essentially lift up the edge and drop it onto the arm and start pushing on the arm in the direction it's already moving. Um, and then you get a slice on the wrists and help keep their opening nice help keep the opening nice and big for a second action. It ends up being a slice mostly with the weak, but because they're move already moving in that direction already, it's a lot easier to control the blade. To control their hands. Sorry. Not their blade. Cool. Well I guess that makes sense to people. Uh, no, I was getting distracted by that cryptic crossword clue that you gave me this morning. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's how this podcast is going. Blame your brother for that your brother for that one. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say on this is that the play of doing a Yurdrick Vexon from Long Point, Mike alluded to this earlier, stop teaching people that Crump is an attack against Long Point. It is not an attack against Long Point. It's not described anywhere. Uh, there are multiple counters to it from Long Point, including this and a binding action, which is in the Crump House section. And it's never anywhere in Lichtenauer. People all the time say that Crump is Lichtenauer's answer to Long Point, and it just is not. Stop it. RTFM. <laughs> read the book. Right. Try and cripple long point. You'll get stabbed by people who read the book. <laughs> I got one more thing. Or listen to our podcast. Go for, it, Go for it. All right, this is quick. So in the Rascal, the Rascal gloss, in mm -hmm. the Cal version, Vienna, uh, 1480s, for the first one, when it says, you know, change... Cut if he cuts against you, change through. If he tries to parry that, change through again. Yeah. They change a word that is aber, which means um well it means um but but sometimes it means like again in the glosses or yet. Um yeah. change to oben in the uh cal version, which you're changing over. Yeah, to vexel oben Deutsch which means change through above. So one could make the argument that the Cal version is telling you to disengage below the first time, then above the second time, and therefore do this cool circle motion all the way around his sword instead. And, but it's only in that one version of the one thing, so. Uh, is, is it Mayer's Rose, this typo? Does anybody know what Mayer's Rose is? No, I don't know. <laughs> I sure don't. Yeah. Anyway, All right. variation. That's, that's a cool little spot. All right, well, I'm going to wrap up now. Thank you very much for listening. This has been episode 31 of Fencing by the Book. Joining me today have been our panel of Kendra Brown, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, TQ, Johanna Hopfgardner, Jess Finley, thank you for dropping by. And I've been your host, Mike Smorridge. Thank you for listening.